Well, hi there, folks. Welcome to the Manacast, conversations about a vision of life that is truly good news for us, for our neighbours, and for the world. My name is Matt Anslow. With me, as always, is Jonathan Cornford. This is the podcast of Managum, where together we discuss uh, the cross-section of faith, ecology, and economy. What are we talking about today, Jonathan? Uh, yeah, Matt. So today we're talking about uh, and the final article that was in the last edition of Manor Matters. It's an article by Jacob Garrett, uh, who's a young writer living in uh, Melbourne. He's uh, studying theology, uh, involved in some mission work in the inner city area there in Melbourne, and also I know he's a bit of a part-time blacksmith. Uh, and Jacob's article, he's titled Imagining Alternatives to Normalised Distraction, which is uh, a little bit intimidating. Yeah, somewhat. The sort, the sort of what the article about is explained in that title, actually, once you understand what the title is talking about. So essentially the article is um, Jacob uh, having a think about how it is uh, that we know that what is called normal in Australia, the normal way of life is not sustainable for the planet uh, and is destructive. Uh, and yet we seem trapped in it. We seem to find it so hard to make different choices. Uh, and he's asking why that is and what it might take to shift it. So there's a fair bit to talk about within uh, this article. And uh, he, he begins it pretty powerfully with recounting, listening to an episode of David Attenborough's uh, Our Planet series. Uh, and uh, the, the episode finishes with Attenborough saying, what we do in the next 20 years will determine the future for all life on Earth. And Jacob it reflects on the fact that how he can watch that and then just sort of switch his mind off and go to into normal life mode uh, without that really having affected him. So we'll unpack that a bit uh, in, the, in, in a moment. But first, Matt, I want to ask you the reverse question from the one Jacob asks. If we open ourselves to the enormity of such a statement like the one David Attenborough has just made, how do we stop ourselves becoming completely overwhelmed by such a thing? Yeah, and that's the statement. He says something like, um, you know, what we do in the next 20 years will you know, determine the future of everything on earth or something like that. Right. Um, so it, yeah, <laughs> that is an enormous, uh, statement. How do we, um, how do we not get overwhelmed and crushed by it? I, I don't necessarily know, partly because Jonathan, <laughs> I often find myself really depressed about the state of the world. Um, and it's not just about, you know, this politician or that, you know, event or whatever. It's just the fact that we seem to be sl slowly or quickly, depending on how you look at it, uh, driving ourselves off the edge of a cliff, especially with regard to the natural environment. I mean, uh, climate change and mass extinctions and soil uh, degradation and you name the issue. And we seem to be doing it wantonly. I find it really easy to get just sucked into a a, a whirlpool of death. <laughs> you know, I don't know. I don't know how you find it, but I think the thing that generally helps me to not become overwhelmed, to not be crushed by those things, is to pray, 
to engage in kind of liturgical grief and lament. I think that's really important to not try to deny the fact that things are often pretty crap. Because I think as soon as we do that, that's when we become overwhelmed by it. We just get sucker punched eventually by the fact that things in a lot of ways are pretty bad. And if we face up to it and lament it, um, I think that's a lot more constructive. But I think the other piece is that I find that I'm more hopeful when I'm doing things in the world that are hopeful. So I can't just will my way to feeling hope. I actually have to be involved in things that are hopeful. And so whether that's stuff here on the farm uh, or whether that's various kinds of advocacy or activism, not just on environmental issues, on other issues too, learning new skills maybe and trying to put those into practice and teach those things to others, um, teaching students about why we have to face up to climate change and take action as Christians. All of those things bring me hope because I'm actually engaging in hopeful activity. And I think the doing is really important to keep our um, being, if you will, uh, in a good place. Mm. What about you? Yeah, look, all of that. And I, like you, Matt, I, I often feel overwhelmed and crushed uh, by things. Uh, and I think it's important to acknowledge that. Uh, and I think you're right to say that the, the grief and lament is, is actually a healthy part of that. If we weren't grieving uh, what we're seeing happening in the world, then there would be something not quite right with us. Uh, yeah, but I, I guess the other way of adding into what you've just said around being part of hopeful action and hopeful work is that being part of a story that is bigger than ourselves, and that's what, what the Christian story mm. is, the gospel, uh, and knowing being part of a story in which we're continually being renewed and resources to act for hope and in hope, but that the hope doesn't depend on us <laughs> getting it right, and the hope doesn't, yeah, you yeah, know, it's, yeah. it's something that's bigger than all of us, even though we're all being called to participate participate in with it and, and join with it. Uh, but I have to say uh, that's you know I, I can just rattle that off, but it, it, it's still it's it's a struggle. I think it is is a real struggle. Oh, hundred percent. I, I it's the same for me. I mean, I, what you say about the bigger story thing is so important because I think if it was left all up to my individual action, uh, we're doomed. So <laughs> <laughs> you know, my. I don't know that my I don't know that my life is necessarily a good example, uh, and uh, you know certainly not comprehensively. And uh, I'm glad that what while I don't want to let my faith in God uh, allow me to escape the responsibilities that we have to the planet and to each other and to and to ourselves, uh, I do want to I I do want to allow that to bring hope in the sense that ultimately God is bringing all things uh, together and we don't have to, it, it doesn't just rely on what we do as humans. Mm. That is beautiful and crucial to us not being crushed, but it can, if, if we're not careful, become a kind of escape route from having to do any, anything serious. Yeah, yeah, and and you know the other key part of that is that it it also uh, influences uh, the ethics of our actions. So um, the the theologian John Howard Yoder wrote a lot about this. How if 
if our framework for ethical action is entirely dependent on, on us being successful, on us winning, that is, in within history, yeah, uh, yeah. then that can lead to us doing all sorts of things where the end that we have in mind, whatever it is, uh, a more just world, a more sustainable world, might justify for us doing all sorts of uh, uh, inhuman things to get there. Uh, whereas actually yes. uh, Yoda points out the the Christian story is founded on on God coming to earth and choosing in uh, through the life of Jesus uh, in one sense to live the way of love even though it meant failure in historical terms and that's what the cross is in one sense it's a it's a it's the historical failure of the life that Jesus lived yeah uh, but the whole point to the story is it doesn't end there. Uh, that there's resurrection, and and he Yoda writes very eloquently that uh, that Christian faith and many others have made this point too is precisely resurrection faith, which is why we we can act and even have uh, an act out of love, even if it seems inevitable that our actions will fail in the the whatever uh, outcomes we might hope for, because. Uh, that's it's not up. It's beyond us. There's there's something more at play, and that's our, an economy of resurrection. Definitely, yeah. I, I've used Yoda's work a lot, uh, and it's obviously problematic because of Yoda's uh, problematic behaviour. But I think the way that he describes our role. Uh, or, or our vocation as being about faithfulness rather than effectiveness is really important in a time where um, our culture is quite utilitarian. And so often we are willing to do certain things that are problematic to get to a certain ends. Uh, whereas Yoda would say, no, the the center of history is not uh, our decisions and our power, but it's actually the cross and resurrection. Uh, and and what shapes human history is actually those things rather than what we strive to do. Um, it doesn't again mean that we are uh, absolved as, of responsibility, but I think it is important for us to center ourselves in that story rather than in the one of just sheer human power and will. Yeah, yep. Yeah. Uh, I think that, that those are things that are, are helpful to think about. So, gee, gee, Matt, we've got very deep very quickly here. <laughs> um, and and we're not really. This is just for for those who haven't uh, read Jacob's article. Uh, we're not here talking about things. Uh, we've gone well beyond what what Jacob talk is talking about. And just to be clear, we're, we're in these uh, uh, podcasts. We're not actually particularly wanting to talk so much about what's already in the article because you can read that ourselves. But to use it as a bouncing point for for broader conversation. Yeah. So we talked about how do we we don't be, become overwhelmed by. Uh, what's we see happening to the the planet. But let's go to the reverse question that Jacob asks and and maybe sharpen it a bit. Uh, So Jacob is really asking, how is it that we can uh, prevent ourselves from being impacted by them? And and to some extent, I think, you know, that our our not being impacted by them is a self-defence mechanism against the sort of grief and lament that we've already talked about. Uh, but I guess a more pointed, sharper question, Matt, would be why don't Christians in particular tend to get as angry about things like extinction? Yeah. This is a question that I think gets at the heart of some of the divisions within the church today, particularly within the Protestant world. And I want to be careful not to give kind of um, 
there are some well-worn answers to this question, and they would be things like, oh, well, there are certain evangelicals, certain Protestants uh, who just don't care about the natural world. Um, they Maybe they think it's going to all be burnt up in the end by God anyway, uh, and it won't matter, so we don't really have to be too concerned about it. Or maybe they're too focused on personal salvation, on the, you know the, 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 the soul of the individual, or whatever language gets used. And that's all... There is obviously truth to all that. There are those versions of um, faith out there. Um, I don't want to be unkind to people who maybe think differently to what I do, but I think that I think that we do need to recover a more cosmic understanding of salvation. We we do as Protestants, because of our history and our tradition, we do tend to think of salvation and of what God is doing mostly in terms or and sometimes purely in terms of A, what happens to us when we die, and B, what happens to the individual person or soul or whatever. And there are traditions in the church that extend salvation in much bigger ways than that, where salvation becomes something that affects the whole cosmos, that by becoming, um, by, by coming in human form, Jesus doesn't just uh, redeem humans, but actually redeems uh, all flesh and all creation. Uh, all things in this world by sharing, but by Christ coming to share in uh, their sort of uh, physical, uh, in physicality, Christ is actually redeeming uh, all things in a sense. And within those traditions, yes. salvation isn't just about what happens to us after we die. It's about what is what God is doing in and through and above, in a sense, uh, above us uh, in all the world. So God's action is one of uh, salvation in in all senses. So, you know, salvation is about the fact that um, we 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 begin to follow Christ and we become part of this community called the church in which we live out a different way. That itself is salvation. Or what happens to us after we die, that is salvation. Or what happens to the natural world as God's will is done and things are being restored, that is salvation. And, you know, you, I could, you know, keep giving examples, but... Mm the vision of salvation in that kind of cosmic lens is much, much bigger, both in terms of the scope of salvation, but also the time, the, the chronology of it. Salvation isn't just something in the future, but it's also something in the present uh, and in the past. You know, God is is always saving in a sense um, and delivering us from the effects of our uh, our sin and the effects of death and this kind of thing. And I think that if we don't understand salvation in that way, we don't have that big vision of salvation in a sense. If our gospel doesn't encompass uh, all the world and what God is doing in all the world to restore all things, as St. Paul says in the book of Ephesians, you know, he says that God's plan is to uh, unite all things in heaven uh, and on earth. Paul has that great big vision of what God is doing. If we don't have that vision, I think that it's too easy for us to look at animal extinctions and go, oh, well, you know, that's awful. Um, you know, 
especially when it's an animal that looks cute, uh, like a turtle or something, <laughs> you know, <laughs> oh, that's terrible. How bad is that? The turtle or the whale or the rhino is going extinct. But, you know, ultimately it's not at the core of what our vocation is as Christians. I think that's where you get to when you have a more, when you have a too limited understanding of salvation. Mm, sure. I'm interested that you find turtles cute, Matt, That's, um, but we won't follow that little, little rabbit hole. <laughs> you don't? Oh, my um, goodness. I, I, no, hold on. We've got to stop. We, we are addressing this now, right now. Tell me what you've got against turtles, Jonathan. No, I have nothing against c- turtles. Uh, I guess what you're saying there, uh, Matt, is that in another way of putting all of that is um, it's a failure to love what uh, God loves and it's a failure and what God is working to heal. Uh, and to 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 not be grieved by uh, by those things when uh, extinction uh, when 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 we see it happen. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I I think that we share so much with that. I mean, you know, to put it in more organic kind of terms, like we share our home with animals. They are a part of our world, and what we've managed to do as humans is to basically make the world our habitat. Like everything that happens, well, a great deal that happens in this world now is focused on humans. And that is not the way that God created the world. God did not create a world in which everything is just for humans only. But actually God creates a, a, a whole cosmos where there are all these creatures who call this earth their home, and we are called in Genesis to be the caretakers of that. And I think we buck against our vocation, our God-given vocation, uh, our sort of creational vocation, if you will, when we uh, when we just don't care about the animals that share our home with us. Mm. All right, so we, we've been talking about uh, where in segments of the church or Christianity there's been a failure to, to think about these things. Uh, one of the things Jacob brings up in his article is that even amongst people who are already highly concerned about this stuff, green-minded, environmentally-minded people, uh, there can be some pretty big blind spots. And, and the one he brings up, I think, is a really uh, important one. He, he talks about... Uh, travel, um, particularly air travel and international travel, uh, as as something of a sacred cow uh, in our culture, uh, and resistance to change to change our habits around travel. Uh, although we've been forced to in 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 recent times. Uh, so, Matt, I guess so there's two questions there. Um, firstly, how do how do we change people's how do people's uh, minds and habits change? What things are effective in changing our minds and habits? And but also, and maybe you can use travel travel as your example here. Uh, why is it such a sacred cow for us, and why why are we so resistant to change on this one? Yeah, this is really interesting because travel, like international travel, hasn't been a thing for that long for the vast majority of people. It's only in the last few generations that we've been able to relatively easily travel across the globe. Um, So it's become kind of an assumed right fairly quickly. So I don't know, you know, I don't know why that is uh, exactly. I probably could give a few guesses, but I should refrain from doing that. Um, 
But I think Jacob's right. I think it is a sacred cow in a sense. It is something that we take for granted that we should just be able to travel around the world according to our whims. And I'm not, I'm, I'm not condemning anyone for that because frankly, international travel is fun. <laughs> you know, um, there are places in the world that I've been that I've really loved going and that have, I've had experiences around the world that have changed my life. And I, there are places in the world that I want to go. So this is as much for me as for anyone else. But I, I, I'm reminded of a book that I read probably a decade ago by Michael Northcott um, called A Moral Climate. And it's a, a book about the ethics of um, climate change. And he raises this, he has a whole chapter about travel and holidays and because we know that air travel has, it does have a significant effect on the natural world. Uh, maybe not this year, <laughs> in the COVID year, but uh, generally, you know, over the, over the decades, um, air travel has been such a significant issue. And he talks about the fact that we actually do need to change our habits. We need to change the way we do holidays. And that begins with the way, uh, changing the way that we see holidays. And so he wants to get away from the idea of holidays uh, generally in the sense of traveling to a destination just to kind of consume it. And he instead thinks that Christians and others um, should embrace the old tradition of pilgrimage. And so rather than just going to a place, sort of consuming it as a location and then going home, uh, he thinks that pilgrimage could be a way to do it in an alternative fashion. That is, you know, having the journey itself of, of walking somewhere as a way uh, to enjoy the natural world, uh, even in a sense to rest, even though for many people it might not sound restful. And that's not without its problems, particularly for people who are not able-bodied, for example. But I think that's a possibility. In uh, Jacob's article, one of the striking things, he recounts a story uh, to try and do something like what you're suggesting around pilgrimage, uh, is he he decides to walk from Melbourne to Sydney rather than drive or take the take the plane. Uh, and he, he recounts his experiences. Uh, I won't go through that, uh, but it's a, a fascinating example. So would you walk from Sydney to Melbourne, Matt? Maybe. Uh, <laughs> um, I think that, if I didn't have very young children, it would, it would be something that I'd be interested in doing, or at least something like it. With young children, you know, I got a five-year-old and two, three-and-a-half-year-olds. That sounds like hell on earth. But, <laughs> but generally, it, I don't know. Yeah. I, I mean, look, it's easy. I'm sitting in my office now in a chair and going, yeah, that sounds like I could do it. And if somebody said, will you do it? And I'll, I'll babysit your kids for a couple of weeks, I'd be like, oh, maybe, maybe my thoughts would be slightly different. But in theory... Yeah, I kind of like the sound of it. Uh, whether I'd do it, uh, maybe, hopefully. <laughs> what about you? Nah, nah, I don't think I would. Uh, you know, part of me likes to think I, I would if I was younger and, you know, blah, 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 so on and so forth. But um, it's a pretty huge thing to do. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm pretty impressed that he, he managed it. I just, my mind boggles at even just thinking the logistics about it. I, I guess he didn't overthink yeah, yeah. that and, and, and just went with the adventure, which is part of what, what is pretty cool about it. 
Um, I do like the idea, though, and I do like walking over landscape. So I know what he means. Um, so that's one of the things that gives me great joy is walking through a landscape rather than uh, driving through it. I do like hiking. Uh, but that's yep. pretty big. Sydney to Melbourne is that's a big walk. Yeah, twelve hundred k's is not nothing. P- people often go to Spain, which you know is international travel, I suppose. But they go and do the El Camino. How long is that? I don't know. I don't know. I just know it takes a plane flight to get there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't know that it's twelve hundred kilometers though. So yeah, woof. So another thing Jacob brings up in his article, Matt, is uh, the question of imagination. And he raises the question whether we actually are struggling from a failure of imagination. And I can imagine some people, especially some Christians, uh, reading uh, and seeing a word like that uh, and being worried that the word imagination is a bit too much uh, about you know, what we're doing in our heads and and therefore, you know, we shouldn't be trying to imagine anything. We should be just be trying to follow God's will and uh, be tapped into that or something like that. You know, uh, that imagination yeah. sounds very human or self-generated. Um, how should we think about what the role of imagination is in how we live and how we think about things? Yeah, yeah. I I mean, it's it's clear imagination isn't really a word that gets used in the Bible much, if at all. Uh, so I can understand why some people might be nervous about that word, particularly if they subscribe to what sometimes gets called biblical Christianity or whatever. But I think imagination is incredibly important. I think uh, in a very real sense, we get what we see. Uh, and what I mean by that is we get what we imagine. If all that we can collectively imagine is what we have now, we're just going to keep getting the same thing. If we can imagine something different, that is the beginning of us seeing change. Now, change is not necessarily always good, of course. I'm not a believer in uh, just inevitable progress uh, and human mastery of the natural world or whatever. So imagination isn't uh, inherent, you know, it doesn't lead to good outcomes necessarily all the time. But I think it is a necessary ingredient in building, uh, you know, a, a better future, uh, to, you know, bringing about positive social change. We need imagination. And this is, this is not just a thing that is about, um, like I said, progress, but I, I think of, uh, the work of Walter Brueggemann. He's got that very, very, Um, kind of a classic book called The Prophetic Imagination, in which he talks about the fact um, that the prophets in the Old Testament, their role was twofold. On the one hand, their role was to critique the current order, to critique uh, what was currently happening in Israelite society, and, and even more broadly than that. But also, on the other hand, uh, their role was to offer a kind of imaginative alternative to what was currently the case, to give people, uh, an, uh, to offer people a different possibility from what currently is. And um, I think Brueggemann is right. I think it's a powerful statement of what the role of the prophet is. And I think it's a powerful statement of what we always need in our societies because we always need to hear what God has to say about the way things are and the way things ought to be. And um, Mm. so I think that kind of, that kind of imagination is crucial. 
And, and that's another way of saying of what, what's going on in that uh, New Testament word metanoia, which gets translated as repentance in our English Bibles. Uh, it's uh, the new mind, which is uh, in one way, the way you've been putting it, the way uh, an ability to imagine something new, something different to, to what is now. Yeah, that's right. And to put it in more general terms, I think it would be strange to deny that imagination is a bad thing, given that it's a, it's a rational uh, and creative uh, capability that humans have been given by God. <laughs> you know, this isn't uh, yeah. something yeah. that is uh, some result of some kind of marring of our natures. Like imagination is a is a creative and and I think we innately f- can grasp that it's a beautiful act that is in keeping with our natures uh, as people made in the image of God, etc. Yes, and actually for for Tolkien fans, uh, people may not know that uh, Tolkien, who was a, a very devout Catholic uh, believer, um, the, the act of his work is an effort to embodied in essentially what redeemed imagination might look like, you know, the story mm. in the stories that we can tell. Yeah, yeah. And just to, and one final point to make, which is just to make a connection to our previous episode, is where we talked about in a uh, moving from Tolkien to something completely different. Our own housing crisis. We talked about uh, some of the housing issues we face in Australia as being a failure of imagination, and and uh, just remembering that we we talked about the role of imagination there. Mm. One of the other uh, I can even, things that someone who reads this article and and is not um, I guess immediately sympathetic to it, or or even some people who are sympathetic might read an article like Jacobs, and it, frankly, many articles that are on the uh, the Manigam website, uh, and 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 argue well, you know, this puts a lot of uh, emphasis on the role of individual action, on 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 me changing my behaviours, on you changing your behaviours, but actually we. Um, but surely, if anything worthwhile is going to happen around climate change and the extinction crisis, uh, that's not going to cut it at all. Don't we really need uh, change to be happening on a much bigger scale and much bigger frame? How would you you respond to um, an objection like that, Matt? Yeah, that was one of the things that struck me reading Jacob's article. Um, obviously, you can't say everything, and his article was about it was emphasizing the individual, which is important. Um, but the other side of the story, the other part that we also need to tell is that we need collective action. We need um, action at a higher level as well in order to see the kind of changes we we need to make to avoid serious uh, issues related to climate change, etc. What I don't want to do is say individual action isn't important because it's crucially important because, you know, collect, collectives are make, made up of individuals taking action. And we've seen the way that uh, various kind of individual actions can actually spread, spread through societies almost like a kind of virus, uh, in a good, a good virus, uh, and, and change behavior at a more massive level. So you see that kind of grassroots change happening. And that might be something like, uh, this just comes to mind, it's not the most massive and important example, but uh, people keeping chickens at home, for example, right? Uh, 
people keep chickens, they get eggs, uh, and they can compost their food uh, pretty easily. And that, you know, not many, not that many years ago was kind of a weird thing. And now it's pretty normal. Uh, and I read somewhere, I can't recall the source, but that home egg production with chickens has cut uh, 10% out of the uh, the egg market of the sort of bigger corporations. Wow. Uh, and, you know, knowing a bit about how those corporations conduct their business with regard to animal ethics and that kind of thing. I mean, that's, that's pretty fantastic in Australia. Mm. So that level of individual action can make a huge difference. Don't get me wrong. I don't want to detract from that. But we also need to have imagination for broader societal solutions that hold corporate and collective interests responsible for our current predicaments, environmental, uh, economic, whatever. And so I think of um, uh, James Davidson Hunter has this book called To Change the World, and he makes this argument that uh, Christians tend to think of social change happening at the individual level. And he critiques that and says, well, that's not actually how cultural shifts occur. It, cultural change doesn't happen through individuals, he says. Um, he thinks that cultural change happens through institutions. And so his uh, kind of solution or, or, or his uh, way of talking about uh, changing the world uh, is through building institutions and building power. Uh, now, uh, I think there are critiques that can be leveled at his um, thesis. So I'm not, yeah, there's stuff to say about it, but I think the broad, the broad point that he makes is right, that Christians and people who care about the environment and, and, you know, and the Venn diagram where they overlap, especially um, those people can't simply rely on a few individual changes of habit to change the world and to bring about, say, the end of, um, you know, uh, emissions that cause climate change or things like that. We have to uh, actually do the hard work of building up institutions that will uh, be able to work at that higher level as well. Um, mm. And partly, I think that's the church. The church has played that role in the past, and obviously, there's a bit of distaste for that kind of possibility in our current society because of the history of how the church has used that power at times. But I think the church, as an institution, can, if it uh, for, is well formed and is listening to uh, experts and being uh, shaped by by that kind of stuff. Um, I think we can play a powerful role in society for seeing uh, change at a much higher level than just the individual. Yeah, and it's a false dichotomy really, isn't it? That uh, The That's idea right. that uh, it's either individual action or political action. And, and I guess the link between the two is that word imagination because I think um, uh, one of uh, the greatest arguments for uh, being involved in, in taking a, having care and attention for our individual lives is that it's in those places in our own life that, that we learn the imagination for a bigger picture. Yes. Uh, that that's uh, it's by our lived experience that we begin to imagine new, new alternatives. Uh, and so that's, you know, the, a, 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 the, again, the previous article where we talked about uh, Claire, Claire's, um, Claire Dawson, Harvey Dawson's efforts at co-housing is an, 
if uh, moving into a lived experience, a new lived experience that helps shift uh, what we can imagine politically uh, over time. That's right. I think it's pretty fashionable nowadays to dislike institutions. And so you hear it in all sorts of um, uh, circles. And I'm thinking of especially of various circles in which I travel. Uh, it's, it's very common to disparage, for example, the institutional church. You hear that kind of term all the time. And there are good reasons for that, by the way. I don't want to be insensitive to the fact that the so-called institutional church has harmed a lot of people. But I don't know what the alternative is. I don't know what people assume they can do uh, outside of actually building institutions. I think that they think that if we just uh, are kind of authentic or something in our existence, uh, eventually we'll win the day. But that's not how things really work. And we do actually have to build effective uh, and well-formed institutions if we want to see uh, positive change. So I, I, there's much more I could say about this. So I, it, it's a bit of a bugbear of mine, but I think we need to be very critical of the kind of move to just disparage everything institutional because I think the only alternative to it is to just be totally atomized and isolated and and ultimately unable to really uh, live out our convictions in a way that's bigger than just the individual. Yes. Well, I can see, Matt, that in this podcast series, we're, we're going to have to get somehow at some point to discussing um, how we think about politics and a, and partic- a new a way of thinking and acting politically and how that connects to our individual lives and, and all of this. So um, uh, so I guess watch this space for a rethinking of political philosophy and political theology, we hope, maybe one day. Yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll see how that goes. Um, but look, that probably brings us to the end of this podcast, <laughs> I think, and um, that's enough for today. So folks, thanks for listening. Uh, you've been listening to the Manacast. If you want to read the article that we've been uh, kind of riffing on in this episode, you can find it at managum.org.au. That's M-A-N-N-A-G-U-M.org.au. And if you click on the Mana Matters tab, uh, you'll find the article by Jacob and a whole bunch of other articles that we hope you find helpful. We hope you have a good rest of the day and uh, catch you next time. See you later.